You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. look at the gifts of adoption and justification. So we are continuing our study in Titus chapter 3 of how the triune God applies salvation to his people. Listen or follow along as I read the first seven verses from Titus chapter 3. Remind God's people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness, loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, here's the goal or at least part of it. Being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You will remember that these verses describe a sinner's conversion, emphasizing first the internal ethical transformation that takes place when God saves them. This salvation comes from and by the Trinity. The Father's grace effectively appears in the gospel call. The Holy Spirit regenerates and renews the soul with all the benefits procured by Jesus Christ. Then the Father and the Son pour out the Spirit abundantly on every believer. But verse 7 our sermon text for this morning, reminds us that salvation is more than a change within us. It also involves a change in our status. There is an alteration in our relationship to God. So in verse 7, two more parts of salvation, two more gifts are named. These are both outside of ourselves, but they are integral, or if you're British, integral to our salvation. The two are justification and adoption. And so in verse 7, in continuing to describe our experiencing of salvation, Paul moves forward in an orderly and logical way from the internally applied aspects of salvation to its legal aspects. 
And this is critical because we cannot be saved without receiving both of these types of gifts from God. Remember, we all have both a bad record and a bad heart. We are both guilty and wicked. Both of these separate us from God. And in order to live with God forever, both of these problems must be completely resolved. The bad record, the guilt of our sin, must be justly removed and replaced with a perfect righteousness. And our bad hearts have to be completely transformed into perfect holiness. We must have a glorious record and a glorious being to inhabit glory. So biblical salvation consists in more than deliverance from hell by forgiveness. That's part of it, but it has to be much more than that. And so I hope that Every believer here is relieved to learn that in the salvation described in these verses, everything we need to be fully and eternally rescued is provided by our triune God. He saved us, not mostly, not partly, in every way we needed, he saved us. That's what these verses teach. Now, Christians of various types have often emphasized one of these needs for our salvation over another. Now, sometimes that may be necessary to correct an imbalance, but unfortunately, as we all know, corrections often become imbalanced in themselves. So, for example, during the Reformation, the Lutherans emphasized justification by grace alone through faith alone. And that, of course, is biblical. But for some of them, this was merely a theory of the forgiveness of sins that could be believed without any corresponding or evident holiness of life. That's not a biblical teaching. The Anabaptists thought of these men as mere Bible talkers, as they called them, and that's an apt name. They said, you possess a dead faith, and that, of course, is a proper biblical assessment. The Lutherans, in return, charged the Anabaptists with mixing faith with works and so destroying grace. Good Martin's followers emphasized the legal aspect of salvation, while the Anabaptists, I guess if I were doing M&Ms, it would be Menno's followers, right? Emphasize the aspects of inner renewal and practical discipleship and obedience. But we have to follow Paul in these verses and not divide these two things. Now, I'm not saying that every Lutheran did divide these two things. And I'm not saying that every Anabaptist misunderstood and divided these two things. But it frequently happened, and that is clear from the historical record. So we must be followers of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in these verses 
and not mere men. To be a true Christian, we must experience the change of regeneration and we must be justified. We cannot be right with God by claiming to have one but not the other. We must have a correct standing with God and a changed life toward God. To put it in simpler terms, we need a new heart and we need a pure record. Together, together, not in any way separate, together, these are salvation. And both of these sides of salvation, again, are found in these verses in Titus. So let us accept the complete teaching about these verses for our salvation. Now, the truth of being justified by God's grace is profoundly important. Martin Luther went so far as to declare that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the linchpin of the doctrine of salvation. A linchpin is a pin or a bolt that passes through the end of an axle to keep the wheel on, to keep it in place. In other words, to Luther, to get this doctrine wrong was to have the wheels fall off of our cart of saving faith. Clearly, such a vehicle could not carry us to heaven. It is vital that we have a right understanding of justification by grace. And so I want to spend much of our time this morning explaining this phrase, being justified by his grace from the rest of scripture. The Bible does speak much about it, and our 1689 Confession of Faith summarizes it well. And my main points will reflect the short but thorough explanation given there. So let's look at several aspects of justification. First of all, let's look at its definition. Its definition. In the scriptures, the term justification is a verdict about a man. It's not a description of an internal change in that man. It's a verdict. Justification is a pronouncement about a man's standing, not a claim about his personal goodness. So it's a legal kind of term. As has often been said in justification, God is acting as a judge. He is not acting as a surgeon. Now, in other aspects of salvation, such as regeneration, God does act as a surgeon. He, as it were, spiritually cuts us open, pulls out the old dead heart, that heart of stone, and he puts in a new heart, a heart of flesh, and he sews us back up, and we always recover. He's a surgeon. But justification deals with a man's relationship with God. It has to do with the question, how can a guilty sinner who deserves and is under condemnation, ever be right with God. I mean, he is an always righteous judge. How can a man escape his bad record? So if regeneration 
is the beginning of the answer to the question, what can be done about a man's bad heart? Justification is the answer to the question, what can be done about a man's bad record? Okay? This legal sense is the way we use the word in our everyday lives. In this, justification deals with our standing, not our character. So if we're accused of something, some sin, lying, theft perhaps, and then we justify ourselves, that doesn't mean that we make ourselves good. It means that we are declaring our goodness in the matter. We're saying, I'm innocent. That's not true about me. The Bible uses the word in the same way in non-salvific situations. For example, in Luke 7, 29, the people listening to Jesus' teaching respond by justifying God. It's the same word. Now, did these people make God just? Or did they declare that God was just when they spoke? And in the realm of salvation, the word means the same. So in Romans 8.33, the question is, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who will bring any charge? We're in a courtroom. This is a legal scene. The answer, it is God who justifies. He's the one who answers the charge with a non-guilty verdict. So, to justify is the opposite of to condemn. And as we know, to condemn doesn't make a person guilty. It declares or pronounces them to be guilty. So to justify doesn't mean to make a man righteous, but to declare a person to be righteous. But that should cause you to ask some questions. Wait a minute. (laughs) How can a righteous God do this? I mean, if you're saying that we're bad and God pronounces us good, how can a righteous God ever do that? How can he maintain his integrity? How can he be righteous? Well, let's be clear. The scriptures do proclaim that God does indeed justify sinners. He justifies sinners. Romans 4.5 plainly states that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Romans 3 verses 19 to 26 is instructive in this. I'm going to read that to you. Romans chapter 3 verses 19 to 26, and then I'll comment on it very quickly. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. That's the exact same phrase that's in our text, justified by his grace, 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the answer to the question of how can God declare a wicked man to be righteous and not lose his integrity? That's the answer. The answer is the righteousness of Jesus Christ obtained through faith. That's the answer. Now let's step through the verses quickly, and I do mean quickly. First, in verse 19, it is clear that the whole world is guilty before God under the law. Verse 23 tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile alike are guilty. So we aren't dealing with God justifying the godly. That's not the context at all. Second, in verse 20, justification isn't possible by human law keeping. The law brings is good in the sense that it brings the knowledge of sin, but it doesn't bring the power to obey God and not sin. And so all men who are fallen, they every one of them sin. So again, it is sinners who are in view here, not people who are personally righteous. Third, verse 21, God has brought to light his righteousness. He has a way to justify, and it's separate from the law. So in other words, there is hope. There is another way. Fourth then, in verse 22, this other way is through faith in Jesus Christ. Fifth, verses 24 and 25, this justification, this verdict of righteousness is by God's grace. It's a free gift procured by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent to be an atonement by his blood. Everyone who receives this by faith, whether Jew or Gentile, they are declared righteous. And so sixth and finally, God is able to maintain his just character and in what? Great love and kindness. He is able to declare the ungodly to be righteous. This teaches us that God justifies sinners. He does not justify ex-sinners that he has made holy so that he can declare them righteous. Because, you know, now they're personally righteous. Now they're good. No. <laughs> the righteousness of God, verse 21, is found in Jesus and his redemptive work. It is his righteousness, not ours, that enables God to justly declare us righteous. He's in our place. We are united to him. Well, what is the work of Christ for our justification? How does it answer our need? 
And how will that understanding perhaps help us to further define or understand justification better? Well, this could be many sermons, but let me just give it to you again in short form. Our justification is found all in Christ and not at all in ourselves. That's the answer. 1 Corinthians 6.11 We are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his person and work, there is our justification. There is our verdict of righteousness. No part of it is found in us. It's not in our name because we don't have a good name. So it's so this gift is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, again, specifically, how does this work? <laughs> in two ways. First, Christ died on the cross to pay for his people's sins. He died in their place so their guilt could be forgiven. So their record could be erased. He suffered the penalty they deserved. That's the basis of our forgiveness, Acts 13, 38, which says, he is the man through whom comes the forgiveness of sins. Now that's a good start. Having our sins forgiven, that's a great start. But we need more than that. That's not enough for God to declare us to be positively righteous. Not only must a man's sins be paid for, he must have a positive righteousness if he is to be justified. And Christ's entire life of obedience, as Philippians 2.8 says, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, is that righteousness. By his obedience will the many be made righteous, Romans 5.19. And so pardon from sin comes from the work of Christ. And a perfect righteousness also comes from the work of Christ. So God doesn't have to be unjust in declaring a verdict of righteous, 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 righteous upon us. He simply applies the work of Christ to our account. And so he justifies the ungodly. So to sum up, justification is as Baptist Catechism question 36 says, God pardoning all our sins and accepting us as righteous in his sight only for the sake of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, counted as ours. And so our justification is not of merit. It's not of worth, our worth. It is, as Titus 3, 7 says, by his grace. Now, you know that it's the nature of grace to be exclusive. If something is of grace, it's of grace alone. All to the glory of God's free favor and not in any way a work or merit of men. The least bit of men's merit or good works pollutes and utterly destroys grace. Justification is completely a gift. It is by the grace of God. So all of that is its definition, all right? 
Now, much more quickly, who is its agent? Who is the agent of justification? Who is the one who does this declaring? Well, it's God the Father. He's the one who justifies. Again, our text says, being justified by his grace. Well, who's the his? It's the same he who saved us in verse 5 and who showed us mercy in verse 5, the one who with the Son poured out the Spirit. It's the Father. God, our Savior, of verse 4. Throughout Scripture, it's God the Father who declares men to be righteous in his sight. According to Romans chapters 3 and 5 and 8, it is God, the God who sent his Son, who justifies us. That is God the Father. So that's its agent, justification's agent. Its instrument. Now, verse 7 of our text in Titus 3 doesn't explain how the work of Christ becomes ours, how it's counted as if it were ours. It doesn't explain that mechanism. Now, we might think in the following way. Well, according to our verse, verse these verses, uh, we've been washed in the new birth by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that came to us uh, through Christ. Right? Now, we know that's not the complete elimination of sin, but, but maybe it was enough for God to count us righteous. Or maybe our works done after this point are, are good enough for us to receive a righteous verdict. But that is the classic error of the Roman non-church. It assumes that the God of the Bible will call a man righteous on the basis of an imperfect life. That is not the God of the Bible. He cannot call evil good. He never calls the guilty innocent. It's not just that he doesn't do that. He cannot judge unjustly. So this idea simply doesn't work for the God of the Bible. Others say, well, it's the man's faith that's accepted as his righteousness. His faith is a good work. Faith is the work that he must do because he didn't keep the law. So this is kind of the, the new work he has to do. This is a, a new kind of gospel obedience. But there is no intrinsic value to our faith. It's an empty hand. Its only value is that it holds as its object Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Nor is our faith accepted as a, a new kind of obedience, replacing the law. No works, not done before faith or after faith or in the very exercise of faith, are sufficient to pay for past sins. How could anything you or I do from this point forward ever undo what we did in the past? We simply don't have that power. And none of those things could establish us as perfectly righteous. So this leads us, these wrong approaches, lead us to the biblical teaching of how faith alone is the instrument of our justification. 
And of course, it is the grace of faith that is the instrument or the means whereby we are justified. This is plainly taught in verses such as Galatians 2.16. Quote, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, I got it, Paul. No, no, you don't. Let me keep going. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Okay, I get, no, no, I'm not quite done because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Bam, bam, the hammer, he wants it to be thoroughly understood. Make no mistake, it is faith, not works. It is grace, not works. Paul here repeatedly declares that justification comes to us by the means of faith, not by anything else. Anything we do. Philippians 3.9 explains it in even more detail. Paul says he wants to be found in Christ, quote, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes by faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Oh, yeah. And in case I didn't say it enough, that depends on faith. For Paul, faith alone, grace alone, that's the way we receive the righteousness of God. That then is how he can declare us righteous. And this is how faith functions as an instrument. It is in taking Christ, in receiving Christ. Faith unites us to Christ. And so his righteousness is counted to have been ours, to be ours. The focus is not at all on us, but it's on him and his worthiness. And this is why God has chosen faith to be the means, because it emphasizes grace and grace alone in our justification. We are justly declared to be just because another's righteousness is counted as our own. And faith is the way that what belongs to Christ becomes ours. Romans 4.16, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. So let me tell you what you already know. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Right? It's occasion, finally. According to our verse, we are justified not in eternity past, but during the application of salvation in time and space, in our lifetimes. And our brother is amening because not every Baptist before us has gotten this right. right. As the verses about faith explain, we are justified at the time of our exercise of faith. So when God says he justifies the ungodly, he's not deceiving us. We really were ungodly. We were truly under condemnation. 
You know that not only from your Bibles, but now with new hearts, you look back at what you were and you say, yes, I was absolutely worthless. There was nothing in me that drew God to say, oh, righteous, righteousness, righteousness. No, no. He justified you when you were still in your sins. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Verse 4, a part of which was our justification. Verse 7. So while we were chosen for justification in eternity past, Romans chapter 8, the decree in the decree of God, the actual verdict of justification isn't pronounced until we're united with Christ. We are personally justified when Christ is applied to us. Now, that's much too little about probably... Uh, it's hard to eat condensed soup, isn't it? You, you need to pour some water on it. You need to thin it out. And I trust that this teaching on justification wasn't too thick. But let's move now to adoption. This brings us to the second legal gift mentioned, and that is adoption. Or more precisely, one of the blessings of adoption is given. That of being heirs of the hope of eternal life. Now, the, the grace of adoption is a large and wonderful teaching of Scripture. Listen to our confession's summary of the biblical teaching. This is a single paragraph. This is condensed soup as well, but it's glorious. All those that are justified, God granted in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. So all those who are justified are adopted by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of children of God. And now they list some of these. These are wonderful. Think about these this afternoon. They have his name put on them. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They are enabled to cry out, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. Yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption. And here finally is the culmination of it and what is found in our verse. And inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's what our verse says. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Note just several pertinent things about the doctrine of adoption for our, for our verse here. First, it's a change in legal status so that we are declared to be the children of God. 
Secondly, it's a one-time legal transaction, just like justification. Brothers and sisters, you will never be sent back to your evil first parents. You will not be put back in the orphanage of the world because God has legally forever declared you to be his child. Amen. Thirdly, adoption is closely related to and logically dependent upon justification. Think about it. When a man is under wrath, how can he become a child of God? But when he is declared righteous, he's now suitable to receive the blessings of a child of God. And finally, we read many of the blessings of adoption, but the one listed in our verse is that of becoming an heir of salvation. This means that the gift of eternal life is the legal right of everyone who is justified and adopted. Eternal life is your legal right. And our Heavenly Father is not a crooked Philadelphia judge. He's not. His word is true. Believers begin to experience this quality of life now. John 3.16 says that the one who believes in God's Son has eternal life. John 6.47, whoever believes has eternal life. John writes 1 John chapter 5, I want you to know, I want you to be assured that you now have eternal life. This life is our guaranteed inheritance. We hold it, as the verse says, in hope now. We partially experience it. The greatest part is yet to come. It's already here, but it's not here in fullness. But this is the important point. Its legal basis is secure. It cannot be lost. We are once and forever adopted, and so we will receive the glory that is everlasting life with God. Justification leads to adoption, which includes being heirs of eternal life. Now I have six very short uses, and we'll be done. First, let us all be thankful for a complete salvation. Let us be thankful for a complete salvation. Our God is applying to us everything we need in order to be eternally safe with him. So let us praise his wisdom and power, which is on display in our salvation. Amen. Secondly, let us hold firmly to a view of justification that is by grace alone, through faith alone, Amen. in Christ alone. Amen. Moving away from these biblical positions is not just an error. It endangers your soul. Third, let us believe that our sins are forgiven and that God justly sees us as righteous. 
The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We might think, well, yeah, the Bible teaches that. But my question to you this morning is this. Do you actually believe that about yourself? Do you believe your sins are forgiven? Have you grasped hold of Christ by faith? If so, your sins are removed. Not, not some of them. Not some of the time. All of them forever. <laughs> they are cast into the depths of the sea. They are behind God's back. They are as removed as far as the east is from the west. They are remembered no more. And on and on the list of human-like expressions of God's forgiveness are found in the Bible. All that language reassures us that by Jesus Christ's once-for-all death, our guilt is paid for. Our sins are gone, and they are replaced with His righteousness. You wear the perfect robe of righteousness from Christ. That's your status with Him. Believe that He finds you lovely and delights in you as one of His children. Because when he sees you, he sees Christ. Fourth, this teaches us that we don't have to be good to be saved. Now that can be misinterpreted and misapplied, but given the context of our sermon, understand that you don't have to become good in order for God to save you. Oh yes, you must repent of your sins. You must have a change of mind about them to be saved. But you cannot on your own become good enough so that God will justify you. That is impossible. Instead, the glory of God's salvation is that he justifies the ungodly. Are you ungodly? Are you here this morning, an ungodly sinner? Good. Because that's the kind of person God saves. He doesn't save the righteous. He doesn't save those who proclaim themselves, who count themselves, who judge themselves to be righteous but aren't. He doesn't save those. He saves those who know they are lost and need to be found, those who know they are blind and need to see, those who, those who are wicked and need to be made righteous, both in person and in their record. So if you're a sinner here this morning, agree with God about your sins. Call yourself a sinner and turn in helplessness and guilt. That's what you bring to God. Bring to him your inability and your guilt. Bring to him your bad heart and your bad record and say, oh, God, save me. He will save you. Fifth. Because we have experienced so great a salvation, Paul's letter to Titus teaches us that we should be kind and compassionate, courteous and gentle with unbelievers. We were saved by the patience of God toward us. May he help us to be the same toward sinners so they may also receive grace. 
And sixth and finally, let us look to our sure inheritance in order to bear up under life's difficulties. Brother and sister, you have a sure inheritance. You're a child of God. So when you're overwhelmed by evil men or women, when you are drowning in trials and pains, remember, you're an heir of eternal life. A life so glorious, it's, in, it's indescribable. And as great as our present troubles seem, they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory we will experience. Amen. Our fears and our tears will all be wiped away. And it's not only coming, it's coming soon. And it's absolutely certain. Your glory, dear one, is inevitable. Just a little while, just a little while, and he will come. Your groaning will then end, and the brightness and joy of eternal life will fill you and surround you forever and ever and ever and ever, dot, dot, dot. You will be with Jesus. So press on. Keep on believing that by the grace of God, he will bring you, his child, into his home Amen. forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.